Welcome, friends, to season two of The Human Voice with Bob Hutchins. Uh, for season two, I've got a very special guest, actually a return guest. Mr. Paul Levinson is back with us. And just for those of you who may have missed it, I encourage you to always go back and listen. Anytime I bring back a guest a second time, what that means is this guest was so interesting or we didn't get to talk about all the things we needed to. So it would be pretty wise of you to go back and listen to the first episode in our previous seasons with Paul Levinson. Just as a reminder, here's a brief intro before we talk about some of Paul's new work that just came out, some of his fiction work. Paul Levinson is an American author. He's a singer and a songwriter, and he's a professor of communications and media media studies at Fordham University in New York City. His novels, his short fiction, and his nonfiction works have been translated into 16 languages. He's frequently quoted in news articles. Uh, he appears as a guest commentator on major news outlets. He's also a songwriter, singer, and record producer, as I said. He attended the City College of, of New York City in the 60s, and received a BA in journalism from New York University, an MA in media studies from the New York School, and a PhD from New York University in media ecology. And one of the reasons that I find Paul so, so interesting and fascinating is his, his doctoral dissertation, Human Replay, A Theory of the Evolution of Media, 1979, was mentored by Neil Postman and Marshall McLuhan which we touched on that in the last time that Paul was here. We may circle back again. But his he's featured in a new path-breaking anthology published by Blackstone Press, and it's entitled Robots Through the Ages. And it contains stories by classic science fiction authors, including Ambrose Bierce, Philip K. Dick, as well as newer writers like Paul, and his 2019 novelette, Robinson Calculator, is in the anthology. So I can't wait to dig into and talk about all things robots and AI. Paul, welcome back to the podcast. Well, it's great to be back here and uh, listening to your wonderful introduction. I guess I should say, I think I'm back here for two reasons. We definitely have more to talk about. And yes, I'm an immensely interesting uh, guest and character. <laughs> I'm glad you said character at the end. <laughs> well, I, I, it's so good to see you again and hear your voice. I so enjoyed last time and even getting to know you a little bit more over the virtual media methods that we have over the past several months. And I know that that you've just gotten over COVID, you and your wife. Are you feeling better? Yeah, I'm feeling much better. Uh, you know, apropos of science having nothing to do with uh, robots and androids, although presumably one benefit they have is they wouldn't catch COVID. But uh, Pax Lovett, you know, for people my age, it, it really was amazing. I mean, it just like tamped it right down. And, you know, maybe like, I don't know if I'm 100% better, but I'm, I'm feeling great. I have all my energy great. And maybe just have like a little sniffle left at this point. And, uh, you know, that, that's pretty amazing. And, you know, obviously we all know what happens if you're not vaccinated, if you don't take Paxlovid, you wind up in the hospital and who knows if you ever get out of the hospital. So, uh, you know, I've always 
been a champion of science and what it can do. And, uh, you know, I think people who are alive now are lucky they're alive now and not a hundred years ago. And people who will be alive a hundred years from now, largely because of science, will also be even more lucky than we are. Yes, I agree a hundred percent. Thank you for that introduction. I want to jump in this episode and really talk about your science fiction writing, but also how your science fiction writing, Paul, intersects the real world because you're in a unique situation is that you're not just a science fiction writer, but you're actually talking about many of the new robotic AI things that are going on in the media landscape and you're teaching it, you're engaging with your students. So I want to take, go back if, if you don't mind, let's get in a time machine and go back to 1998 and your essay specifically the civil rights of robots, what inspired you to delve into the ethical implications of AI and, robo and robotics? Well, one of the things that have always attracted my interest are paradoxes and even things that maybe not in a philosophic sense are true paradoxes because in a true paradox, there's just no way out. But there are a lot of things that sort of are close to being paradoxes. And I remember I was driving in my car, uh, you know, at the end of the 1990s. And, you know, for some reason, maybe I was even thinking, who knows, maybe someday we'll have automobiles, you know, that, uh, you know, drive for us, which was not such, you know, an outrageous prediction back then. And in fact, we're close to having that now. But I remember thinking, uh, you know, what, what would happen if I, you know, in effect, commanded the car to do something dangerous? You know, either because I was just a lunatic who liked taking chances, or for some reason it was necessary, you know, for me to get someplace very quickly. Who knows what the reason was? And I remember thinking that, okay, you know, I hope that the robot inside the car or the AI inside the car would make a logical decision, would weigh all the alternatives and do the best that it could. But it dawned on me, would, would the AI inside the car, and whether you call it a robot or an android or just AI, it all amounts to the same thing, uh, would it be right for me, even though I bought the car, and if this was a, a, an intelligent AI, far more intelligent than what we had in the late 90s and even far more intelligent than what we have today, we have really nothing close to it, but if it was so intelligent that we might even think, you know what, in its own right, it's a sentient being. You know, no one would think that a Siri or Alexa, or if I was driving a car now and, and, and basically its voice said, hey, you know, would you bring me in already? Uh, you know, I, I, I need, you know, more oil. You're killing me with your neglect. Nobody would think that was really a sentient being. But, but if it was, and, and this is where I got to the point of writing that little essay, would it be ethical for me to, in effect, order that sentient AI to do something that it thought was dangerous for it? Forget even about me. And, you know, and, and that actually is something that occasionally is brought up in science fiction. And there are stories in Robots Through the Ages that even touch on that a little bit. 
But I don't think that question receives enough uh, attention. Instead, what you have in most science fiction and in most critical thinking about androids and robots is, do we want to make them so intelligent because that might hurt us? So like in science fiction, in in the famous uh, uh, Carl Chapek uh, play from the 1920s, R-U-R, and there's a story in uh, Robots Through the Ages that picks up on that. This is the classic uh, concern that science fiction has expressed with robots and androids. We might make them so intelligent that they'll get sick and tired of us and overthrow us and kill us. This is what HAL is in 2001. This is what the Terminator is. I'll be back. You know, all of that is the same thing, the same concern. And uh, I've always thought that we need to give at least as much attention to the other uh, part of this concern. Uh, and as I just said, the, the, there, if, if we're dealing with a, a machine that nobody would think is sentient, no one cares about its life. I mean, you know, even saying life is something that uh, just seems like a metaphor and is not real. But if we got to the point where we had an android as intelligent as Lieutenant Commander Data in Star Trek The Next Generation, uh, then I think we do have an ethical responsibility to not just order that sentient being around. And, and that's really what I was thinking back in the 90s. And I think it's just become even more of an issue nowadays. Yeah, that's good. So let's let's camp there for a minute. You know, everybody is certainly, you know, when we hear about AI, when we hear about robotics, we are even more now, we're elevated into a sense of everybody immediately defaults to two things, scary fear or curiosity. And there's, it seems to be this dance that we do specifically as Western uh, Americans, Westerns in general, you, you don't find this as readily in a more, say, Asian or Eastern environment. They've been friends with robots in their science fiction longer. But for us, we immediately default to that robots are going to, for some reason, wipe us out as if that's all they really care about. And I think it's interesting that you explore the other side of this. Uh, because if we really think about it, there's never been any technology that we can really think of in the last hundred years that has gone rogue by itself, right? It just hasn't happened. Not to say it won't, but as you think about that and as you write some of your science fiction, I'd love for you to to go a little bit deeper down that rabbit hole to say, how does this perspective shape the narrative in your works, because you're someone who's looked at this from uh, media sociology, you've looked at it from media studies, you've studied with some of the brightest minds. I mean, going back to to Neil Postman and Marshall McLuhan and all the people and all the things that you've written and talked about over the past several decades, are you any closer to believing that that we will see a time, maybe in the near or maybe not in the near future? where we will have that type of relationship with machines. I'm an optimist about many things. One of the things that I'm not an optimist about is 
human nature and public takes on these issues, and, and even more particularly focusing on the academic world, what scholars and theorists, for example, like Neil Postman, uh, have had to say about these things. Uh, and we talked about this a little bit on our uh, last uh, interview. But Postman, he started his work, he started his scholarship. His first book was something he wrote with Charles Weingartner, and it was called Teaching as a Subversive Activity. But uh, by the time I came along and I was his student uh, in the New York University uh, PhD program in media ecology, he was already on the edge of publishing the successor book to that, which he uh, called Teaching as a Conserving Activity. And conserving what Postman saw as the essential elements of humanity became his primary goal. And therefore, he and many people, not only people who literally follow his work, but, but people who just are thinking about these developments in technology, including AI in that tradition, have continued that extreme concern about all things technological, but in particular, uh, things regarding, you know, just in the last six, seven months, AI. And I understand part of that is because of chat GPT. I get completely, you know, as a professor, I don't want my students using it. There's a very, by the way, easy remedy for that. Uh, it, it, Congress should just pass a law saying that anything that chat GPT or an AI producers should be so labeled, should be publicly labeled. It's like truth in advertising. That's pretty simple. But instead of doing that, all too many people are wringing their hands. And even I noticed that Fran Dressler, who is uh, the head of one of the unions, SAG-AFTRA, that's now currently striking uh, Hollywood and the producers and all of, all of those companies out there, uh, I support their strike, but I thought it was absurd when she gave this little diatribe um, about robots and AI and said something to the effect that robots should take over all aspects of human life. I, I don't think so. You know, they're, they're not really taking over many, at, if at all, aspects of human life. Yeah, there are some aspects that they have, AI actually, not robots, Nowadays, you know, for the last two or three even decades, uh, here in, in the New York area at least, uh, if you're driving over the Washington Bridge or on a highway, there's not a human being who has to collect the toll, which is a pretty horrible job. You know, you stand out there all day and breathe in the carbon monoxide. Instead, there's an AI device that keeps track of your number and charges you for the toll for the bridge or, or the highway. So. I think that I and the, you know I'm not the only person in the world, but uh, I think that all too few serious theorists, people in the media, and even science fiction writers are comfortable with looking at well, how are these devices helping us? What can we do to improve our lives? with the help of these devices that we invent. 
Instead, it becomes an all too easy development to be frightened of, and frightened is actually too weak a word. I mean, it, it, there has almost been this 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 sense of uh, on the verge of you know people running down the street. No one is yet doing that. You know, screaming, "Oh my God!" You know, the robots are coming. The robots are coming. It, <laughs> it, it's not even close to that. Yeah. So. So in your novelette, Robinson Calculator, in the new book, how do you explore the concept of AI and robots as second-class citizens? Can you share some of the key moments from the story that, that highlight this theme? Because I think it really speaks into this discussion that we're going, because you seem to have this thread of the potential consequences of, of ordering around AI and robots endowed with with, with what could be genuine, at least an elementary version of genuine intelligence. So talk about Robinson Calculator, because I, I think it's fascinating. So how do you explore that concept in that? Can you just give us some key moments? Sure. Well, Robinson Calculator, the character in the novelette named after him, turns out to be a member of a group of ancient androids, and by the way, just to sort of have our definitions, you know, roughly in sync with the way the world looks at it, a, a robot usually is something that looks like a machine. It, it has a general humanoid form, but basically it's made of metal or plastic or some kind of inorganic substance. In contrast, an android, uh, regardless of what it's actually made of, maybe it is even made of flesh, but it's certainly made of something that looks like flesh, and, and so could be taken to be a human being uh, by people who didn't know the provenance of, of this entity. And uh, the, the, the lead uh, character in the story, and um, yeah, I may have mentioned this in our last conversation, my daughter Molly, when she was about 12 years old, read my first novel. One of the things she said is, Daddy, the main character is just like you. And then I was a little worried. What did I have him do that she actually, <laughs> you know, but um, I think writers always tend to do that. And so the, 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 the main character in the story is someone who, guess what, is a professor at Fordham University, uh, a, not quite me, a professor of film and philosophy. And actually, I don't know anyone who's a professor of both, but, you know, it's not that implausible. For all I know, there are such professors. And he gets interested in the calculators because he sees the name Robinson Calculator uh, on a headstone, in a, a freshly made headstone in a cemetery. And it, 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 and, and it turns out he knows something about the calculators. And, and this is where we find that the calculators actually, who knows exactly how long they've been around, possibly going back to ancient history. They've been a largely secret organization. And uh, in particular, there's a woman, Leanne Calculator, no relationship to Robinson, just like as she at some point says uh, to the main character, are you related to every other human being? Yeah, I'm not related to every other calculator. And we begin to learn more about her and the calculators and her vulnerabilities. And I, I tried to put in some very human touches uh, human touches in the sense that we can understand uh, these things as human beings very easily, 
uh, but they're not actually human. So one of the uh, scenes in the early part of the novelette has has the main character uh, having lunch with Leanne Calculator, and he looks down at his teacup and he sees that it's shimmering. And then he realizes it's shimmering because there's some kind of sound being made. And then he realizes it's a very beautiful sound. And then he realizes what he's hearing is a song called Rock and Roll Lullaby, which was a big hit in the late 1960s by B.J. Thomas. It'll be all right. La, 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 la. And, and actually, it's a really beautiful record because when that was produced in the late 1960s, not only did B.J. Thomas sing lead, but they got the Blossoms in. They were a backup group. They got the, a lot of uh, singers who sounded like the Beach Boys. And you have all kinds of uh, complex counterpoint and beautiful harmonies. And so in this scene, the lead character comes to realize that Leanne is sort of almost under her breath singing this song, but she's singing all the parts of the song. Mm. And, and somehow the combination of her brain and however vocal cords are constructed allows her to do that. To her, it's just commonplace. We human beings may hear these parts, but the most that we can sing is one part. And that's what I try to do, you know, throughout the, the novelette. Uh, I try to, uh, you know, make these calculators, again, very different from human beings, but also immediately recognizable as human beings. And, and that, I think, is a good way of getting across to the world that, in effect, they are another intelligent species worthy of our respect and protection. Yeah. And so your work seemed to advocate for the rights of AI and robots. What kind of rights do you believe these entities should have and why? Well, in the end, so what are human rights? Uh, you, you know, this is actually something that understandably is always under debate. What rights are human beings entitled to? And wh whatever those rights may be, they're different than the rights that a dog or a cat uh, might be entitled to. Now, obviously, the ASPCA uh, was created as a way of countering cruelty to animals. And, and so we, you know, most decent people think that uh, there's something unethical in a human being being cruel to, a, to an animal. But nobody would think that a dog or a cat is sentient. I mean, for all I know, some people do. And, you know, I think probably most people, people who even love dogs and cats, you know, want to be kind to them and love them and want to protect them. Uh, but they don't think for a minute that, in effect, it's right to treat them as slaves, which is the way we treat a dog, right? In other words, you know, we're standing outside, the dog is inside, the dog doesn't want to go outside. You know, maybe it's an old dog, the dog, maybe the dog is lazy like me, it's just lying around. I mean, usually dogs want to jump outside, but sometimes they might not. But if we're going out, we are expecting to take the dog with us, we'll, you know, ask the dog to come out 
And eventually we'll go in and basically, if the dog is smaller, pick the dog up. I mean, usually it's not necessary. But a, a lot of people pride themselves on how well they can train uh, their animals. Uh, a couple of summers ago, I was uh, on Cape Cod and I was walking back to our cottage and I saw a man with a big, I think a Doberman pincher and a couple. And he clearly was training with Doberman pincher. And he was very happy to see me walk by because by the way, without asking my permission, he began saying to the Doberman pincher, don't go over to him, stay. In other words, he was trying to uh, train the dog not to just run after uh, you know a stranger. And he even said to me, by the way, I said, okay, if I use you, you know, we're training the dog. And actually I said, no, it isn't okay. You know, I, I don't have time to do this, but the real reason I said it isn't okay, there are ethical issues in how you train dogs. And, you know, our daughter has a dog and she is not, you know, dog is now about 12 or 13 years old. She hasn't completely trained the dog. And she said to me at the very beginning, you know, I'm not just going to train the dog so that every single thing that I say, the dog responds to my command. And, and I think, uh, our daughter was, in effect, you know, she wasn't intellectualizing this the way we are, but uh, on an emotional level, she was getting at what I'm saying. There are limits to that. But now imagine that we have uh, a, an entity that we created and that in, in whatever the uh, test is, the Turing test, uh, the entity passes that test and we then say this entity has the equivalent of human intelligence. This is, I think, where it becomes a problem to just treat that entity like a, a slave. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I definitely can see that. I know my mind always goes to the way that we treat our animals, the way that we treat our robots really says more about us than even if the entity, whether it's the animal or the robot, has emotions for that reason alone. For instance, when I see, when I hear young kids barking orders at Alexa, and actually in a tone that's that's kind of rude if it was a person on the other end, I, al I always wonder, number one, where did the child learn that from? And number two, what is a child learning about things that could potentially serve that person as they grow up and how they treat it? So there's this weird symbiosis that we're beginning to enter into. And part of it is, I believe, and I'll run this one by you, I think artificial intelligence, just the word intelligence attached to anything but a human being scares many people because it's the only thing that we can say we are we have the primacy over all other organic material is nothing is a, is as intelligent as a human being and so when you you wouldn't say you can say oh my dog is smart but you wouldn't say my dog is as intelligent as a human being or you wouldn't say my rabbit is as intelligent as a human being they might do some quote smart things but it seems to poke at our identities when we start talking about machines being intelligent. And I heard, I think it was Mark Andreessen in an interview recently said, you know, we always said, and everyone told us that robots and AI would take over blue collar jobs. 
but here we are in 2023 and AI is, and robots are taking over all the white collar jobs while we're, while we're still having people cleaning our houses, flipping our hamburgers and mowing our lawns. That could change in the near future, but we're at an interesting time where I think we're all having to go, what does this say about us as human? And are we fighting against identity issues that we never had to fight with before? And is the way that we treat these machines and respond and engage, whether it's voice command, whether it's response, whether it's whatever it may be, how much of it is revealing more about us than it is about the machines? That's where my mind always goes. What do you think about that? Well, let me first say that as far as intelligence out there in the organic world that came along prior to human intelligence, there is much, much more of it than I think most people are aware. And I'll just give you two examples. Trees, for example, I read in the past, just in the past year, a fascinating article that trees through their roots are able to communicate literally with other trees and, and in effect send out, hormones isn't the right word, but send out, you know, some kind of sap through their roots that when other trees pick that up, they, they know, for example, that there's going to be a dry spell coming because the tree that communicated that to them is, is in a drier place and maybe they're able to slightly absorb less water. I mean, this article is a very preliminary article, but it, what it basically says when you look at a forest of trees and you think it's okay to cut down some of those trees, what you are really doing is severing important members of that community and not just in a metaphoric sense. The other point, which I just read yesterday, and uh, as soon as I read this, I, I knew I was going to mention this today uh, because it is relevant. It's that chickens, first of all, they're descendants of dinosaurs in a much more direct way than many other birds are, all birds are. But listen to this. You don't think of chickens, no one does, as being that intelligent. And maybe you do if you're a chicken farmer or whatever it's called. But chickens can recognize human faces. They, they actually can tell the difference between human beings. So I'm not saying suddenly don't eat chickens because you're you know, being guilty of cannibalism and, and never saw a branch of a tree down. But I do think respect for nature is part and parcel with what you are aptly concerned about, respect for our artificial entities. And, you know, if you think about it, ordering Alexa around, it's not that Alexa's feelings are going to be hurt. That's what a parent usually tells a child. Don't say that to your friend. Don't say that to your brother or sister. You're going to hurt her or his feelings. That's part of it. But the other point, and I think the, the subtler and equally important, and maybe even more important, anytime you act in that kind of insulting way, you're hurting yourself as a human being. Yeah. You're, you're doing something that's demeaning you. And that's why most people, if you have a conscience, we feel bad about that. You know, sometimes we do things in a thoughtless way and we feel bad about that. I mean, I'll give you an example again. Years ago, and, you know, I'm not the most, uh, 
you know, courteous driver. I'm a New Yorker. I live up to that name. And I can't remember, I was driving out to New Jersey. I think I was supposed to give a lecture there. What else is new? I was late. And I was like driving pretty fast and cutting people off. And so I cut a car off and there was a guy driving the other car and he drove up next to me and I thought we were going to have an argument. And, and he says, you know, in a pretty angry way, you know, what are you doing? You know what? And I realized I had done something wrong. And I, I sort of gestured, I'm sorry, you know, rather than falling into the thing, screaming and yelling road rage. And I, that always stayed with me because when I said that, he, he understood. And where there could have been a really nasty uh, incident, we both drove our separate ways. And I'm not saying I'm such a wonderful person. I always admit when I'm wrong. No, I, I do things that are wrong like everyone else does. But I think in terms of your point, I think parents do need to teach their kids to be courteous, even to machines, even though Alexa and Siri are not remotely sentient. Everything that they do is an if-then. If somebody says this, they, they go into their bank of, of words and, and choose appropriate words. You know, they mimic human intelligence. They're less intelligent even than parrots. We're not really speaking either. They're just repeating words. But but I think that courtesy and respect for organisms in nature and uh, courtesy and respect for machines that we use, I think is a good thing for us as a species. I would agree. How, how do you see the ethical landscape around AI and robots evolving in the in the future? And things are are happening almost at light speed in the past six months alone. I can't even imagine what's going to happen in the next two three years. But how, from your perspective, as someone who has been in media studies now for decades, and as you look at these things. For the past 50 years, you've seen a lot of evolving of media and the effects of media. How, how do you see the ethical landscape around AI and potentially robotics integrated with AI evolving in the future? Well, uh, right now we're at a pretty bad place because most of what I hear is fear-mongering and unnecessary outrage. Uh, there's nothing that's ever wrong with some concern about something. I'm not saying we should accept everything uh, with our eyes closed and our arms open, but what has happened is that AI, it's not quite there, but it's close to becoming almost a curse word. It's AI, you know, and, and you, you know, that I think is not a good thing. As a matter of fact, I've noticed like two or three commercials quietly are trying to, 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 to sort of either resuscitate the term AI or get it back in. Peter. So. The problem is nowadays, as I was saying, AI has almost become a curse word. And uh, I, I was therefore very happy to see a commercial. Uh, it's been out for at least a couple of weeks, maybe longer. I've seen it several times now. I think it's about the, the 
problem of global warming, and now obviously it's so hot this particular year that coral off various coasts are actually dying. And, and the commercial is explaining that they have a system of monitoring the temperature and through AI, basically alerting people when coral might be in danger and therefore uh, uh, oceanic scientists can get there if possible and somehow cool the water or whatever. And I, I'm mentioning that because th th that commercial struck me because it's talking about AI as helping something. Uh, another example, which has been around for a couple of months, which is even more directly relevant to human beings, although beautiful coral is something that we love in an aesthetic sense, and that is also relevant to human beings. But another uh, commercial that is literally life and death, uh, it was, I saw for a hospital in the New York area, and there are probably hospitals around the country that are using AI to analyze scans of human brains for the purpose of predicting if those scans can show the potential for those brains to develop brain tumors long before they actually appear. Mm. Now, that's a matter of life and death. Sure. And, and, and the commercial says, you know, at, at AI, at, you know, whatever the name of the hospital is in New York, uh, we use AI to do such and such. So I'm, I'm glad to see those uh, public uh, outpouring is too weak a word. It's not yet an outpouring, but at least public expressions of AI can also be a, a positive force. Look, over the years, and this gets back, you know, to Neil Postman being my mentor, and even though, as I mentioned on our last conversation, he was the best teacher that I ever had in terms of communicating to me the joy of being a teacher, and I'll always be grateful that I had him as a professor for that reason alone, but he was, especially as he got older, a, an incorrigible pessimist about technology. And uh, I think that we do need a more balanced approach uh, to technology. Uh, what I used to say back when I was talking about Neil Postman, there's almost a Greek chorus that anytime a new technology comes out or begins to get some attention, they, they sing their melancholy you know, songs, their dire warnings, which are worse than melancholy, about what this technology can do for us. You know, everything is a problem. They tend to see the, the bad side of everything. And this is not to say that there are not problems with technology. Of course there are. This is not to say that we should ignore the technologies. Of course they are, there are. But thinking about the positive uses of technology, I, I think is a good thing. By the way, to get back to robots through the ages, and you mentioned there are stories by famous writers, and you know you, you mentioned Philip K. Dick. I'll also mention Fritz Lieber, Clifford Simak, Robert Silverberg was one of the co-editors, uh, uh, along with Brian Thomas Schmidt. They did a great job uh, co-editing the volume. But but one of my favorite stories is uh, by a writer with a great name in terms of technology, Martin L. Shoemaker. Isn't that a good name for somebody? Yeah. So, and he has a beautiful story 
uh, in the anthology about how an android becomes friends with a troubled teenage girl. And I won't say anything more because there's some really good surprises in the story. But that's also an example. In other words, think about people who have problems relating to people. Mm. And you're someone who has problems relating to people. That means that any human being, any person that you talk to might be slightly put off by, by you, you know, because you have some problems. And sure, maybe your own family loves you, but it's unfortunately a sort of vicious cycle where it gets very hard for you to get along well with people. So in a situation like that, think about an android who's programmed to be understanding and helpful. And, and that story uh, by Martin L. Shoemaker uh, goes into that in some detail. And, and so again, to get back uh, to, to Robots Through the Ages, that's one of the reasons why I was so happy to have my novelette Robinson Calculator in that anthology. Look, honestly, I'm not some kind of saint. Uh, the, you know, the first and main reason that I'm so happy to be in there is, my God, to have my story in there among these greats that I grew up reading as a kid. I mean, I you can't ask for anything more as a writer. It's just so gratifying. But I, I also think that the anthology has come out at a perfect time mm. because of what is shaping up. Maybe battle is too strong a word. But, the, you know, I do think that people who have a richer understanding of AI and robots and androids do need to step up to the plate, to use a baseball metaphor, and engage with these critics who, who are so quick to be apocalyptic. And, you know, you, you know as well as I, whatever it was, like five or six months ago, a group of AI scientists signed a, uh, you know, some kind of declaration that they're really concerned about it. They compared it to climate change. That is really ridiculous, comparing it to climate change. I mean, climate change is doing damage right now, every day when you look outside yeah. and some as 110 degrees. So, you know, but yet, you know, for some reason, there are some people who enjoy being uh, sayers of these apocalyptic possibilities. Have you ever... Have you ever heard Douglas Adams' theory, set of rules to describe our reactions to technologies? You know, Douglas Adams, who wrote Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? No, tell me. He says, he says this. He said, I've come up with a set of rules that describe our reaction to technologies. Number one, anything that is in the world when you're born is normal and ordinary and just a natural part of the way the world works. Number two, anything that's invented between when you're 15 and 35 is new and exciting and revolutionary, and you can probably get a career in it. And number three, anything invented after you're 35 is against the natural order of things. <laughs> oh, that's pretty good. Hey, I think that's great. And that's why, you know, uh, there's no doubt that uh, I'm different from a lot Yeah, of me too. Because I still love these new things. I mean, I couldn't wait. And again, you know, there's usually more than one motive. I, I bought my first Prius back, I don't know, in 2002. And, and I was really uh, happy uh, to do it. And uh, I'm not yet quite ready to get an all-electric car, mainly because, like anyone else, I'm selfish. There aren't quite enough Phillips stations 
I'm not going to buy a Tesla anyway for other reasons, but, uh, you know, buy another uh, electric vehicle. But I love these new technologies. I, you know, and I'll just make a point, you know, and I always say this to critics of technology and, you know, uh, Douglas Adams' uh, three-part analysis is 100% right on. The, the truth of the matter is we human beings come from a world in which we were on the verge of freezing to death in winter, starving to death all the time, uh, living maybe until we were 35, 40, and then either we would, I don't know, be killed by someone who threw a spear at us, or we catch some disease or whatever it is, et cetera, et cetera. You know, now, uh, you know, we do many bad things. And again, you know, apropos of Oppenheimer, which I haven't yet seen, but it looks like a great movie, I'm I'm very unhappy that we have atomic weapons. I wish they had never been invented in the first place. I understand why they would be used in World War II, but that was a terrible moment, really, for, for the human species. Uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm not blindly in favor of technology, but I can't help uh, realizing all the benefits that we have. Right. Uh, I, yeah, I'm I'm never cold in winter. And there, it's a tragedy that there are still some people who are cold in winter. That's yet another issue. But the reason that I'm never cold in winter is, you know, I live in a civilization in which it's relatively easy to find a warm place to live in winter. Yes, I agree 100%. And that, that leads me to my last two questions as we wind this down is, uh, Paul, what role do you hope that your writings will play in shaping these discussions? Well, that's a great question. And uh, the answer to that question is the same answer I give when people say to me, hey, you've been teaching for years and years. Well, you know, why don't you take some time off? You know, how long are you going to keep teaching? I always say, I, I don't know, hope another 20, 30 years if I'm alive. You know, I'm certainly not quitting now. Uh, but the same applies to my writing and everything uh, that I do. Uh, I am hopeful in everything that I do that I somehow connect with people who can benefit from getting my message. Mm -hmm. and, and yes, you know, science fiction, I write it for fun. I mean, I, I, I make a decision every time, is this going to be a science fiction story or a scholarly article? And I, I make those decisions based on all kinds of factors. And it is a lot more fun writing science fiction for sure, because I can write about a hero who's a thinly disguised version of me, and that hero is incredibly, you know, sharp, and everyone is attracted to the hero, et cetera, et cetera. But um, the ultimate goal is the same, whether it's writing science fiction, whether it's writing nonfiction, whether it's teaching, and that's to connect to people you know, th throw out, in effect, a lifeline, and nothing, well, maybe a few things make me a little happier, but nothing makes me quite as happy as when I find that someone has connected to that. And, uh, you know, I just finished teaching the second of two classes this uh, summer through Zoom uh, at, at Fordham University in the uh, graduate program uh, the uh, the public the PMMA program at uh, at Fordham University, 
And I wrote to one student in particular saying, hey, thanks so much. You made a great contribution to the class. And he said to me, well, thank you. I almost felt like we spent the summer together. And that really, you know, made me, you know, feel good. Uh, because that meant in some way I connected to that student. And, and hopefully that student will see some paths where, in this case, he can go to get more information. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Well, my last question is, can you share any upcoming projects or writings where you further explore these themes or any other thing? I'm always eager to hear what you have cooking. All right. I'm going to tell you about two things. One is Robinson Calculator is a novelette. But I have to tell you, um, a long time ago when I was in the PhD program, in which Neil Postman was my mentor at NYU, I had a professor of philosophy, I still remember his name to this day, Guy Moglia, M-O-G-L-I-A. I hope he's okay. He's about 10 years older than me. And he made a very important point. He said at one point in the class, you know, that there is no such thing as the ideal or even the intrinsic perfect length for anything you write. Mm. You know, you, you write an article, it could be a book. You write a story, it could be a novel. And uh, yeah, I've always uh, been struck by that. And so one of the projects I'm working on right now, you know, in fact, just a little early today, I'm now working on the second chapter of what will be the novel Robinson Calculator, in which I'll be able to explore many, many more of these uh, themes. And again, you know, as long as the world keeps being so heated and controversial about AI, I couldn't ask for a better market. Yes. I not allowed it. The other thing, as as long as you asked me, and you know, I'm like the wrong person to have asked, well, what are you doing? <laughs> projects? But I do have to mention the the other great project that I've been involved in in one way or another for the last couple of years. It's called It's Real Life. And uh, you can just do a search on Paul Levinson, It's Real Life. And that will bring you to a free short story. It's an alternate history story about the Beatles. Uh, and and uh, I won't say too much about that, except in this world, John Lennon was never assassinated. And the story takes place in 1996. And the Beatles, they're not in the greatest shape, but they're still together. And that's an example of something that has already developed in several ways. About six, seven months after that story was published, uh, a, a guy by the name of Vincent Teese, T-E-S-E, who was my student at the New School for Social Research back in the early 1980s in their MA in Media Studies program. And this is why I always have this relationship with students. He read the story and said, hey, you know, this is a great story. How about I make this into a radio play? I said, great, you don't have to ask twice. And then, you know, the, the star of the story is the late disc jockey Pete Fornatel. And he said, do you know anybody who might play Pete Fornatel? And I said, well, you don't have to ask twice. I can play him. And he said, really? I said, yeah. So he sent me a script. He wrote like a, a little treatment of it. He liked what, what I sounded like. So that that's a, a radio play that's out there uh, right now also for free. And last but not least, just uh, in, in uh, late June, the Media Ecology Association which was founded by Lance Strait, and 
This is the same media ecology that Neil Postman was head of the PhD program. One of the awards they give out every year is the Mary Shelley Award for Outstanding Fiction. And I was delighted that It's Real Life won that award for both the short story and the radio play. And then last but not least, I, that I've also converted into, at this point, a short novel. Nobody's seen it. I'm not sure what I'm going to do with it one way or another. You know, with the strike, I can't exactly shop it around to make it <laughs> a television show. But one way or another, there, there are more places that that story is going to show up in the next couple Fantastic. of years. Well, Paul, you're an inspiration to all of us who are, are sometimes think, well, we're getting up there in age. What do we have to offer? And we look at someone like you that's ahead of us that's still going. So you're an encouragement to me and I know many other people. So thank you for sharing your creativity, first of all. And most of all, thank you for continuing to push forward and always see the bright side of things. And I think your work and the things that you continue to teach to your students are going to hopefully make a difference, not just in your circles, but hopefully in humanity as well. And that's that's the goal of my life's work, to keep nudging that in any small way that I can. So thank you for continuing to encourage us to do that. Well, my pleasure. And uh, thank you for listening to me ramble on. I greatly appreciate it. Awesome. And uh, just encourage everyone out there to go and order it on Amazon. It's by Blackstone Press. It's called Robots Through the Ages. The book is called Robots Through the Ages. And it is an anthology of different science fiction writers. Many of them you may know, Ambrose Beers, Philip K. Dick, and the great Paul Levinson. So go out, pick it up. Anything else you want to say before we wrap this up, Paul? No, it's just uh, been a pleasure to talk to you, and I hope that people keep listening to this podcast for years to come <laughs> so you can see how ahead of the game Bob and I are. Absolutely. Summer of 2023. <laughs> All right, Paul, we'll talk to you soon. <laughs>